Hey everyone, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where we talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. Welcome back to the Everything That You Need to Know series, a series of different primaries where we break down everything that you need to know about the stock market, the economy, and the crypto market. Today, we are going to be diving into the Russia-Ukraine situation and talking a little bit about what it means now that Russia is inching closer to the Ukrainian border and now that Putin and Biden had a Zoom call. I'm bringing Ben back on to talk about it and also to note, this is an ever-evolving situation. There will be more that comes out of this. This is just a primary. So quickly some news items. Initial unemployment claims came out today lower than expected and also down from the previous week. That is signaling a healthy labor market more or less but is also signaling that the labor market is quite tight which could of course lead to the Fed incorporating that into the decision framework for the FOMC meeting next week. Also CPI print is supposed to be out tomorrow that is expected to come in very hot. I of course will be back tomorrow. Getting right into it. For this I just wanted to provide some historical background just provide a really broad overview of everything that's happening. Ben and I are going to obviously go in, into much more detail on the situation and talk about it in much more in depth. What is the deal with Russia and Ukraine? So going back in time, Russia has a really great land mass, North European plain, and that land is essentially ripe for the taking. You saw this happen during the Holy Roman Empire, during the Lithuanian Empire, during the French period with Napoleon, also during 1940s Germany, and obviously with the USSR. It's just very easy land to take. So that is kind of how Russia thinks about its land mass, is it knows that it's very easy to sort of take control of, and they've just been embattled for the past many, many years with people just stepping in and taking over their landmass. What happened with the Soviet Union, it was formed during the October Revolution of 1917 when Lenin died, Stalin stepped up, and Stalin was really the one that saw it to where it, where it got to be. And they signed a non-aggression pact with Germany in 1939 during World War II, but Germany, of course, just ignored that and invaded in 1941. But then Soviet forces were able to capture Berlin, which led to the Allies winning the war. So the Soviet Union was on the UN Security Council, but they were holding on to Eastern Europe, holding on to all these countries after everyone else had given up the land. And everyone was like, stop that on the UN Security Council. The Soviet Union was like, well, we don't really want to give these up. And everyone was like, well, you need to. And then the Cold War happened and then NATO formed in order to protect against the Soviet Union. And then 40 years after NATO was formed, right around the 1990s, there was a revolution in these Eastern European countries and the Soviet Union was dissolved into its separate countries now. Things were very tough for the Soviet Union economically after they broke up. Yeltsin, who was the president after that time and after the breakup, ended up stepping down to give office to Putin, who is still in office. And he's basically been in office since 1999. And in January 2020, the entire Russian government resigned and he essentially signed into law that he's not going to go anywhere. So he's in office for the foreseeable future. And Putin really wants Russia to be a superpower, which is why he wants Ukraine and all these other countries. In 2014, Ukraine had a revolution where they had a pro-Russian government and the pro-Russian leader was not signing a political association and free trade agreement with the EU, with the European Union. People in Ukraine were like, please, can you do this? Russia during that time annexed Crimea, which led to sanctions by Western countries, which ended up being very bad for Russia because it led to the Russian financial crisis, costing Russia probably about $560 billion as of now in lost trade. So they've lost a ton of money. They're economy it was weakened by annexing Crimea, but they wanted to protect this warm water port that they had, but now their economy has been struggling. And so you might say, well, why is 
Putin doing all of this? He thinks that NATO is essentially enroaching on Russia, and Ben and I discussed that in depth. Putin said this back in 2005, that the breakup of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century, and he wants to rebuild the Soviet Empire with Russia wanting to extend its sphere of influence. That's what Putin's goals are, is to get Russia back to where he thinks it should be. He wants NATO to pledge not to allow Ukraine to join NATO and to not put weapons within Ukraine. And then Ukraine is like, well, Russia, you know, you're not in charge of us. You can't tell us what to do. And that is sort of the situation that we're in now is Russia wants everybody to listen to Russia, but Russia is not in charge of everybody. So Biden got on a Zoom call with Putin yesterday where Putin was essentially like, don't let Ukraine join NATO. And Biden was like, no, you can't tell Ukraine what to do. Now Russia is going to have to find a new way to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. One of those ways includes invading Ukraine. And so what are some possible outcomes here? Just a very high level overview and also important note, Russia has already invaded Ukraine somewhat. They are already in the eastern part of Ukraine, considering the fact that they're already essentially a little bit in there. This is an important quote. Russia is not invading Ukraine. It is threatening to launch a renewed offensive to expand its occupation. For NATO, so on the other side of this, NATO is a big block of the United States, Canada, the Western European countries, and more. It's also important to point out that Russia is a core component of the economy in Europe. So if this does get to the point of nuclear warfare, obviously the, the economy is not the most important thing people's lives are, but if, the, if it does get to a more neutral level, Russia is currently supplying Europe with a lot of natural gas. And as we've talked about before, Europe is in a natural gas crisis. And so one of the other situations that could happen, and is happening is that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline could shut down between Germany and Russia, and that would result on pressure in Europe as well. And because Russia is a key component of the energy market and more in Europe in terms of economic growth, I mean, the sanctions of, of Crimea hurt Europe too, because Russia is an important trade partner. How is the U.S. going to respond? There are economic sanctions that the U.S. could put into place even more so after the ones of Crimea. They could impose even more sanctions on these debt instruments that countries use in order to finance their government. Could really hurt them because Russia is already struggling a little bit, and if they're not able to finance their growth, that could be really problematic and could prevent them from growing more. There could also be sanctions on individual firms or sectors. They could say to a Russian company, nope, you're sanctioned from doing any business with the U.S. They could sanction them from transforming the ruble into a dollar. That could prevent them from engaging in international trade because they're unable to convert their currency. Then the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline. This is under Germany's jurisdiction, but the United States has made it very clear that if Germany decides to go through with it, that, that would not be cool. And then the SWIFT suspension. SWIFT, the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Tele Telecommunication. Russia could be cut off from that. And that would essentially be just like cutting Russia's legs entirely off from an economic standpoint. SWIFT itself is very crucial for payments across the world for the flow of money, so it would be very difficult for them to get external financing and essentially to have a functioning government. Russia has SPFS, which is an alternative to SWIFT that they've developed that could help them mitigate the blow, but SWIFT is essentially the nuclear option of sanctions. Essentially, they could crash Russia's economy, and it's very hard to invade another country if your economy is in the tanker. So there's economic sanctions, then there's military force, but that gets into a little bit of what I was talking about earlier with it's like well how how big can the response be there's a lot going on and like i said this is just a part one there are components of this that are ever evolving and i really hope that we did a good job providing objective and fair analysis around the situation i hope to talk about it with care and providing that information to you all hey ben thanks so much for coming back on so excited to have you there is so much going on as usual the world does not take a break and today just want to get right into everything that's happening and talk about it of course thank you for having me back kyla 
but it is always great to be back on here. A lot is going on in the world, and particularly in the Eastern European section of the world, because uh, no one has any chill over there. Actually, quite a few people do, but there's one very big member who has no chill. You want to rush right into it? Russia is appearing like they may invade Ukraine, right? That is obviously not ideal. To give some context to why Russia would want to take Ukraine, in order to understand why, you have to like look at a map of Europe with the Northern European plane. And this plane runs from the borders of France to all the way to the Ural Mountains in Russia. And it's very flat. So when you look at history, throughout time, every single empire in Europe has expanded across this plane. And so it is a straight shot. Even when Napoleon, during the French period, he cruised all the way across the plane into Moscow. And so this plane is a lot of concern, right? Because it works both ways. If you're Russia, it allows you to storm all the way to France. And if you are France or Germany or anyone along the way, you can storm right into Russia. And it happens a lot, right? It's the one consistent problem with all of Russia's geography is this uh, vulnerability. After World War II, the Allied forces, they gave up all the territory they, they liberated, right? They gave it all up, but the Soviet Union, or I guess, you know, which is the, the state now is Russia, but it's a successor state. They kept all of their territory. And the whole notion was that we need it for a protection from Napoleon to the Russian Revolution to the German chancellor of the 1940s. Essentially, the past 100 years, Moscow and Russia had been ransacked and to great damage to Russia. They felt that after they just paid with so much blood that they could keep the land that they had. That was their view, right? I'm not necessarily saying it's right, but that's what they thought. The territory they gained gave a significant amount of protection because in the Second World War and all the other wars, Russia was meeting troops on their border, right? That was no longer the case because now they were meeting them in Poland and in Yugoslavia and a lot of the other satellite states. So that was a good amount of protection. And so that's also why NATO was formed, because it works both ways, right? The Red Army could meet American forces in Poland if it came push to shove. But similarly, the Red Army is in Poland. The United States needs to be there for Eastern Germany. They need to be there for France and the United Kingdom. And so that's really a cause for concern there. So that's why NATO gets formed. Eventually, as we know, the USSR collapses. It falls apart. We say sayonara, and it gets broken up into several pieces. And that brings us to today where NATO has expanded after the fall of the USSR. And if Ukraine joins NATO, NATO troops would be 283 miles away from Moscow, which is obviously not ideal. But at the same time, NATO is a defense pack. So NATO is like, what's the cause for concern unless you're going to invade Ukraine, right? So that really takes us to today. That you've been sort of describing it is that NATO was formed to protect against the spread of the Soviet Union and to really keep everything in line. And so did Russia ever have an option to sort of like ouch, just shake hands or was yeah. there anything like that or sort of like a, an agreement? Well, after the USSR fell apart, there was like this optimism in the Clinton White House and I believe the Yeltsin administration in the Soviet Union or Russia at that point. And their optimism that they would like grow and become friends between those two leaders, that was a possibility. But once Clinton left office and once Yeltsin left office, it faded away, right? It's kind of a fan, like a fan fiction. NATO and Russia would join together and that the West had betrayed Russia. And that's why Russia acts the way it is. Russia, after it went away from Yeltsin, who was objectively progressive compared to the Russian leaders that would follow him, they, they realized that the Russia had just been a superpower that was feared not only by the Americans, but also the Chinese. Why would they go to being second fiddle? It's being one of these second rate world powers like the UK or Germany or France or Japan. Why would they do that? They themselves pushed themselves away from NATO. There was never really an opportunity once Yeltsin and Clinton left office for Russia to ever become anything more than a 
the needle in their side. And so when the Soviet Union fell apart, Russia was in a pretty tough economic situation, right? It's only recently that they've been able to cause as much needle poking as they have been. When the USSR fell apart, they were very poor, all of them individually. The USSR, they had nukes in Ukraine and Kazakhstan. Russia had nukes as well. And so the United States created a program to pay for security for Russia's nuclear facilities because they were so concerned that they would slip in the terrorist hands. And even to this day, there are still nuclear weapons that are being sold on the black market in Moldova to very, you know, Lord knows who that were stolen at the end when the Soviet Union fell apart. So Russia was very impoverished to the point they couldn't even take care of their own nuclear weapons, right? Very impoverished. Now they are recovered to a certain extent, as you mentioned, to impact things on a global stage. When did Putin sort of start this? It started almost as soon as he took office, right? Where he was like, okay, NATO, you got to chill out. You're enriching on our territory. But has it only been recently that he's been able to back up his claims? To a certain extent, right. This is Putin's like technically his second reign. So he took office during the 2000s. Then Mendel, he came and took over. And him and Obama, to a certain extent, shared a careful relationship, really kind of trying to move Russia into more intertwinedness with the West. And once Putin took over, in his eyes, what Mendeleev was doing was making them submissive to the West, right? Rather than being a superpower of their own, they were caving. That's what happened there. That's why Putin has acted the way he has. And that's also why he won't give up power. So circling back to Russia's objectives, right? There are like four key objectives that Russia is trying to accomplish here. And what component of them revolves around NATO? And then what else is there? Is it really just all NATO? Russia has quite a few objectives here. Russia wants NATO to pledge to not let Ukraine and Georgia join NATO, right? Because that places them extremely close to Russia's border. But also Russia believes it has a sphere of influence. It believes that these former Soviet states are its sphere of influence. All superpowers have them to a certain extent, and they also get very upset when people mess with them. Famously, there is a country that claims it has control over an entire hemisphere called the United States. They get very upset about that, right? So to a certain extent, it seems like it's trampling on their sphere of influence. And that is one of the reasons it's very upset. But also, is mostly a security thing as well. When you give up that range, when NATO is able to put that many weapons that close to your territory, what defense do you really have? There is a congressional defense bill that is giving Ukraine $300 million for their military. It passed right after Biden and Putin had their Zoom call. The US is aware of this going on. It's not even just about miles. Missile launch times also, they shorten up dramatically. So that, you know, that's one of the objectives, keeping them away. And so they seem to want to achieve that objective by building up forces and making it seem like they may invade. And it seems like a pretty good way of getting that. But unfortunately, Vladimir Putin, President Biden rejected his red line over NATO membership because as Biden correctly pointed out, NATO membership is not dictated by Russia. It's dictated by NATO and the countries want to join. He's right. It'd be a terrible precedent to allow enemy of NATO decide who gets to be in NATO. That's some Dr. Doofenshmirtz stuff right there. So Russia will need to find new ways to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. This has been a very big concern for them in the past because there used to be a pro-Russian president of Ukraine. This is why, you know, when Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania and Romania, when they all joined back in 2004 to NATO, this is why Ukraine didn't go with them. There was originally a pro-Russian president. And so when the revolution in 2014-2013 takes place, Russia invades Crimea and they annex it out of concern that the pro-Western group that was taking over would end up preventing them from leasing the warm water port entirely. So essentially they were like, all right, we'll go and grab Crimea. 
just in case just everything with Ukraine kind of falls apart. Well, go and get Crimea. I think there's an important point that we didn't address. They're already in Ukraine. Is that is that correct? You're 100% right. Okay, so when are they going to invade? They've already essentially done that to a fraction of a degree. By invading Ukraine, there are a lot of potential outcomes that aren't great for Russia. One of them being that you have to fight a war. And Russia is not really in a place to be fighting a war right now. Not exactly economically stable, especially after COVID. And so it's mostly they want to appear as if they're going to do it. And, and don't don't get it twisted. Russia seems willing to do it if their demands aren't met. They want to try to seize it through diplomatic means. It's about to him looking tough and getting what he wants and also helping the domestic situation in Russia and helping people not get not angry enough to overthrow him. That's something that they're bumping up against, I think, is that there seems to be a lot of anti-current regime sentiment in, in Russia right now, and mostly because they're dealing with similar things that the U.S. is. Not the U.S. isn't dealing with it to the same degree, but, you know, they have price inflation, they have wages that are falling. To your point, like Putin seems to want to make upon all of that. What are some other outcomes that we could see from this where they seem to feel like they're getting closer to economic ready to invade? What are some of the possible scenarios coming out of this situation? Really, there are, I guess, essentially four, right? Russia backs down, which has never happened ever in the history of anything. They're also dealing with nationalistic problems. People are not happy because, uh, let's face it, when Putin took over, he invaded Crimea, and then the Russian economy crumbled. At the end of the day, sure, you may have Crimea, but now Russians are worse off than they were back when he wasn't in power. The other scenario is that Russia gets what it wants, and NATO and the EU agree to allow Ukraine to be subjected to Russia's mercy. I don't foresee that happening. It's just something not smart for the Western leaders to do. But also, on a domestic front, I don't think there's any country in Europe whose leaders would be praised for such a move, especially given the existential threat that Russia or ha- is to Europe. Third is that Russia invades Ukraine to the Dnieper River, essentially annexing all of eastern Ukraine. And this is probably the smartest way to go about it. The Dnieper River, it's a natural border. Since 2015, they've been fighting in the Donbass region. Many people, they argue that Russia's campaign in the Donbass is part of an annexation attempt. and has been since 2015. Others argue that it's to keep Ukraine in a certain amount of chaos, prevent it from organizing itself enough and being in the shape it needs to be in in order to join the EU and NATO. If you're Russia, one of the things you can do is essentially double down on that, right? You can double down on that separatist force and push for a military occupation of eastern Ukraine. And it would probably be your easiest route because the people in eastern Ukraine are largely ethnically Russian and they speak Russian. So if you're going to occupy a space, it's usually helpful if they speak the same language as you and have a lot of similarities with you. So there's that. And then, you know, I think we cover all four of the essential possibilities. Can you think of any others? What if they go all in? That would be, that would be, that'd be pretty crazy. It would definitely promote a NATO response. I'll give you that. It, It would also, it would have to promote a NATO response because if they go all in and they push all the way through Kiev, into Ukraine's western borders. Now they're bordering Lithuania, Poland. So if they push all the way to the the western edge of Ukraine, and NATO has to respond because in many ways, Ukraine has been acting as a buffer between both of them, right? And while both of them want them on their side, uh, want Ukraine to be on their side, it's simply unacceptable to NATO to have Russian soldiers be that close to Poland. And Poland is a very sophisticated military, but they're not strong enough to withhold Russia on their own. And so you would have to promote a response because once the Russian military gets rolling, how do you know they're going to stop at the Western border, right? So 
it's it's one of those things where if they go all in, NATO has to respond. Especially like what does that show everyone else that someone's applying to join and get NATO membership, but if Russia gets to you before you get in, too bad. What is NATO worried about? What's going on with their warfare techniques? So NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, it's everyone in Europe, it's Canada, the United States, and then you have like various partners around the world, like Australia is a partner, New Zealand's a partner, Japan's a partner, Mongolia's a partner. So that is who they are, right? And their primary concern here is that Russia is going to conquer Eastern Europe, and they want to avoid a direct war, right? That That is the ideal aspect here, is to avoid war entirely, because the EU countries, they've seen 75 years of peace. They have not seen a war since World War II, unless you lived in Ireland during the Troubles or if you lived in the Balkans, right? So they've seen it relatively a relative state of peace. And so having to go back to war is a nightmare scenario for Europe. They've grown up. They're no longer doing their 90 wars a year stuff. That's, you know, that's really a concern. But also another concern of that is that Russia's military doctrine suggests that it will use nuclear weapons. It suggests it will use it if it believes it's losing or that if things aren't going their way. And it's called the escalate to de-escalate strategy. And that if they use a nuclear weapon on the battlefield at a low yield, that everyone will come to the table and be like, let's stop. It's quite the gamble, right? Because we've in the past 75 years been drilled into our head that mutually assured destruction is like a thing. Nuking cities is not really a thing anymore. If nuclear weapons are going to be used, it'll be used in low yield conventional ways on the battlefield. And so at that point, it gets it gets messy, right? So if Russia uses a nuclear bomb outside of Kiev, right, to de-escalate, they're relying on the United States, because the United States has nukes, France has nukes, and the UK has nukes, but also NATO has nukes. NATO has their own set of nukes, which I believe are essentially United States nukes. If Russia uses them, what kind of response does that prompt from NATO? What are the domestic politics of nuclear strikes? I don't know. The only person ever used is Harry Truman, and he won re-election, right? But that was a different time. What is that? Does you know if they use it on Ukrainian troops, does that demand? Does the European populace, does the American populace demand that President Biden use nuclear weapons back? And if that's the case, how do you prevent it from escalating? Because in nuclear warfare, right, this is uncharted territory that has never happened before. How do you prevent it from spiraling out of control, right? So that is that is really the big concern there. But also the other concern is what happens if war escalates to war in the Baltics and the Black Sea? Now, you know, now you have a broader, more expansive war. And it's something simply Russia can't keep up with. They don't have the manpower or the equipment necessary to fight against NATO for a prolonged period of time. So now if they're not just fighting in Ukraine, but now they're fighting in the Black Sea, the Baltics, you know, it raises the odds escalate to de-escalate. We talked about this even before we got into this call. I was like, okay, we can go through like very, very careful in, in terms of how we say this. I do think there are plenty of room to grow here before they start to escalate, to de-escalate. And that's not going to be their first shot. That would be insane. But if NATO responds, or if Ukraine starts beating Russia, you could, depending on the stakes here, see a escalate to de-escalate. It's something Russia's been writing about for 20 years now. And it's something that they continually practice. The United States number one superpower in the world, they got to do something here if Russia does something. When you go after them, you're subject to sanctions, right? These sanctions, they decimate the economy, especially from the United States and its Western allies, especially when you're almost solely export to Europe. It's damaging, right? There's a couple of different economic sanctions that can be implemented. And so this is what we're essentially seeing in Iran is that they can produce oil, but the United States is like, no, you can't. 
you're not going to be able to do anything with that oil. And so with Russia, what the United States could do is, is go after their bond market and not allow them to issue debt. That's how co- countries fund themselves is through bonds. And so if the United States is like, no, no, no issuing bonds for you, no secondary market for you, that is going to make it very hard for their government to function. And the other thing would be that they could prevent Russia from turning the ruble into US dollars. And that would really just make it really hard for them from an exporting importing perspective. So global trade, it would just essentially cut them off. Nord Stream. What are the consequences of that though? So (laughs) <laughs> They're going to invade. So what happens here with Nord Stream? So that's a German-Russian pipeline that was like 90% done once Biden got into office. Russia right now has a little bit of a chokehold on Europe because Russia exports a lot of natural gas to Europe. And Europe's in the middle of a pretty bad natural gas crisis. And this has been all over the news. And I've talked about it a couple of times on the channel. It's just, it's very expensive to heat your home in Europe and prices keep on going up. And part of the reason is Russia is one of the key suppliers to Europe for natural gas. And Putin, it was the Essentially, like Europe, you were not responsible enough. You weren't responsible enough to figure out your natural gas situation. And now you're paying the price. So he's essentially like squish with his finger. He's like squish on Europe because he thinks that they kind of deserve that. But what's interesting about the pipeline is it's a German-Russian pipeline. It, it would help Germany and Russia obviously wants that because more exports for Russia, more money. It creates a really interesting dynamic because if Russia does invade Ukraine, the US was like, Germany, you got to shut that pipeline down or else you're in trouble. And Germany was like, okay, fine. There's a sense of frustration there because you do have this energy crisis that's happening. And this is from a politician in the United States, just to kind of highlight, I think, how confusing this stuff can be. And also how the narrative is so off sometimes is that Ted Cruz thinks that Russia is going to invade Ukraine in order to bypass Ukrainian pipelines, which is kind of like, what? The natural resources aspect of this is super important. And this pipeline is sort of highlighting that if they invade, this could go down and it would be more detrimental to Russia, but also Europe is in an energy crisis. So there's just a lot of dominoes on the table. Do you think that the threat of cutting Russia off from the SWIFT system, which is the international banking system, do you think that is enough to persuade Russia from action, to persuade them away from action? For them, like it's really this big game theory piece, right? So Putin's playing a game in his head on how far he can push the needle. They might be willing to take those sanctions on. I think it'd be detrimental, but they might be willing to do that. I think you're right about that, but I also think it presents an interesting opportunity for China. The whole thing of SWIFT is that if you, once you get cut off from SWIFT, if another country helps you, they also get cut off from SWIFT. That's how the United States stops people from helping people who have SWIFT is that it's it's like, uh, you know, when you're misbehaving as a kid and you get grounded and your brother's like, I don't think you should have grounded her. And she's like, all right, you're grounded too. Same thing, right? So I do think there's an opportunity there for China to kind of, if they can afford being cut off from SWIFT, if the United States is willing to cut off China from SWIFT to undermine the US dollar as the world's reserve currency and the US being the center of the international banking. That is why I think cutting Russia off from SWIFT is like considered the nuclear bomb of sanctions is you better hope it works and that no one tries to get around it because China is the world's largest economy now by some metrics. So what happens if they help them get around it? It all just falls apart. The fallout of SWIFT would be very interesting to watch, but from a very morbid perspective. Because if you're Russia, the Russian people, are, it would have devastating effects for Russia, especially in the middle of winter. Not ideal. But also if someone China helps them get around it, that's, 
I don't want to say that's the end of like American hegemony, but it's definitely the first parting shot. The swift sanctions would require a lot of coordination. Russia came out and was like, this would be essentially impossible to execute if you did want to do this. A lot of this does require a lot of coordination at, at a very tense global stage. And so that's another thing just to keep in mind of like the swift sanctions. Would implementing swift on Russia be that hard to overcome, given that the United States has done the same to Venezuela and Iran? I think this would be different just because of Russia's hold on natural gas. They are almost like a cornerstone of the European economy. And they're right. a global superpower, which Venezuela never was. Iran was a lot closer. Right. Did you see the news out of India today? So essentially, Russia and India came to some sort of agreement where they're like, oh, we aren't going to essentially do exchanges in terms of the dollars. They still have to have the U.S. dollar and their reserves to balance everything out. They're trying to move away. The U.S. dollar's reserve currency is, as we both know, incredibly important. As we all know, is incredibly important. Russia-India news is interesting, right? Not everyone used the U.S. dollar as the basis for exchange, right? I think most do. But it's not a requirement, is it, to use, to convert to the U.S. dollar and then convert to another one? This is more symbolic versus anything. Yeah, them just being like, yeah. this is going to be our underlying denominator. I don't know if you saw about Russia delivering military equipment to India. This is kind of a thing where it's India takes orders from no one, right? So in order to be a U.S. ally, you can say whatever you want about the United States and you can do whatever you want, really. But when push comes to shove and Uncle Sam needs you, you need to back them, right? And that's just not what India is doing, right? They spent what, 100, some year, 100, more than 100 years under British control being told what to do. That's not a thing India is doing anymore. They, as they've been abundantly clear, we're not a colony. And so we will bow to no one. We are, and they believe they are an equivalent power to the United States and China. Recent countries like France and the UK and Germany buy American military equipment. America sells that at a markup, right? But it comes with like this reassurance that like we're in NATO, we're in a partnership together, we're allies, you need me, like you're going to buy this, you're going to buy a massive markup because it helps the American economy. Russia doesn't do that. Russia doesn't do these massive markups. And Russia's not like, you are beholden to me. In fact, Russia can't really find friends nowadays. So they're really like selling these for much cheaper than the United States ever would. I wouldn't look too deep into it. I think the US and India are working towards better relations. To pivot back around, to uh, branch back to Russia, another US option that has is military force, right? This is the one that is not ideal. US troops and Russian troops have fought before, contrary to popular belief, yeah. You know, an example of that is in Syria. During the Syrian civil war, things got really messy, right? You had 20 different factions out there. You had Turkey doing their own thing, the United States and the UK doing their own thing, Israel doing their own thing, Russia. And there were several times where U.S. soldiers and Russian mercenaries, in quotation marks, but they're actually Russian soldiers, saw combat several times. It would not be the first time that they had gone toe-to-toe, but they never gone toe-to-toe in Eastern Europe. It's really a war 75 years in the making. It's something I think everyone wants to avoid because when you have a war of great superpowers, how do you keep the conflict narrow, right? One of the things that would cause an escalation would be pushing into Russia in a military capacity from any direction. How do you keep that narrow, especially if you're just fighting a war on defense, it gets increasingly hard if you can't take any offensive moves into your enemy's territory, right? That's one of the options, but it's also a very, very messy option. And it prompts a lot of questions. And one would hope 75 years of plans have been written up. Maybe someone could find some rationale in them. I will say, though, the Norman warfare is restraint. It's restraint. And countries often exercise restraint in response to people, but also in retaliation to things. 
And a great example of restraint is during 1940s Germany, the Germans had the ability to use nerve gas on the Allied forces, and they never did. The restraint is the norm when it comes to warfare, and World War II is a great example of that. At the same time, it's the same war where the first nuclear bomb was used too. Give some, you lose some there. Just out of curiosity is when I envisioned warfare in the future, I thought it would sort of shift away from boots on the ground, guns sort of things. And I guess maybe that's where these nuclear weapons come in. But is there an aspect of this where Cold War, even something different, where the United States or Russia could hack a grid? Boots on the ground is a thing I don't think you'll ever see a World War II style war of boots on the ground like that again. When Armenia and Azerbaijan went to war two years ago, when they fought over Karabakh, they demonstrated that drones were kind of the thing that led the thing there, right? They're using very cheap drones to kind of drop explosives on soldiers, and they did have great success to the point where Turkey and other countries have changed their doctrine to kind of mirror that. And Ukraine has a fleet of drones as well. But at the end of the day, you do need boots on the ground to secure an area. So there's that. Now, in terms of hacking a grid, that's it's definitely a thing right it's definitely a possibility always but there is a certain level of restraint when it comes to cyber warfare i'll say especially between the u.s and russia and that it's safe to believe that both of them possess the ability to knock the other one's power out and maybe the united states definitely has the ability to do it to russia as to where russia's capability to knock out the united states maybe one of them at least one of them there are three of them right so there's that but i i don't perceive cyber warfare being used in that way over a war in ukraine now if it branches out and it becomes a war much larger than ukraine i think you could expect to see cyber warfare but the low the low yield nuclear weapons this is a new thing that's come out of like these military academies of younger generals you know, like we have these nuclear weapons lying around, why don't we just try using them? Low yield, it's not provocative, it just gets the job done. But then the question raises, what does a low yield nuclear weapon provide you that a conventional weapon doesn't, right? Because if a conventional weapons have a higher yield than some of these low yield weapons, why are you using the nuclear weapon in the first place? Is it just the stigma that comes with it? I use the low yield nuclear weapons, so now you know it's on the table, what else could be coming? Use of low yield nuclear weapons could be, I think it's both a way of sending a message and a way of trying to project force in such a way that is discouraging to your opponent. Yep. So you're saying that they're not just nukes, they're narratives too. Essentially, yeah, they're they're narratives. Uh, it's, you know, the same reason why in 2017, the military dropped a, a MOBE, the United States heaviest bomb on a cave in Afghanistan on ISIS. It was a, is a narrative thing. A lot of times weapons are narrative. And that's why Whenever anyone ever says, oh, this country has this these secret weapons, it doesn't really make sense because 25% of the use of a weapon is using it. The other 75% is wheeling around, let everyone know you have it. It's the whole point of a nuclear weapon is to prevent yourself from getting invaded, right? If you have a secret one, you're not doing anyone any good. I think that's an interesting point. 25% is actually using it. 75% is, is letting people know that you have it. Are there any other applications from Cold War? of course, happened, is still happening. What are some other lessons learned from that that apply to the situation? Ukraine could turn into a Vietnam, Afghanistan, like Soviet Afghanistan uh, scenario there, where um, both the Americans were in Vietnam when the Russians were in Afghanistan. You had a lot of special forces missions, CIA or the KGB funding insurgencies. The United States, along with its Western allies, could turn the Ukraine into Russia's new Afghanistan, right? Making this so just unpleasant 
of an occupation as they possibly can. But they're not going to militarily respond, right? Say they only take Eastern Ukraine. The United States could just fund these insurgencies and make it very, very difficult. You could see the return of Cold War era actions, depending on how long this thing gets drawn out. Zooming out here away from the Cold War actions, do you think the U.S. political situation could make the U.S. response or like could, I don't know, kind of dictate it to a certain extent? Yeah, I, I do. And I think that uh, it's interesting because uh, Fox, Tucker Carlson, I think the clip was uh, Putin is just trying to, not that, you know, I believe in people saying what they want, but when it becomes inflammatory like that and dangerous, it's really concerning. But essentially they were like, Putin is just trying to protect his Western border. And there was a New York Times article that was talking about this. And they, they were like, the U.S. gets mad at everybody for their political systems. But the U.S. can't even decide how it feels about its democracy. Like we talked a few weeks ago about Arizona trying to pass so they could just overturn everything. Why the Republican Party seems to be, not all of them, but a certain sect of them, I, you know, perhaps the Tucker Carlson wing of it is taking, you know, obsession with Putin. Putin is like the strong man leader. And that is how the right to a certain extent was viewing Trump was that he was a strong man leader. They're also taking obsession with Viktor Orban in Hungary, right? They're undermining democracy there the same way President Trump would have liked to here in 2020. There is a portion of the American public who sides of Russia over this and is not because they support Russian imperialism is because they support Russia's breakdown of its own democratic system. It serves as a mold perhaps, for this broader mm -hmm. thing there. So that's a lot, and not yeah. to speculate too much, but essentially what you're saying, it's just, it's objective fact, is that some sections in the United States politics have, have sort of gotten to the point where there's a lot of conspiracy theories or just a lot of anger. Carl Carson represents one of those subsections, and you're saying that they would look towards Russia's deterioration of government as indicative of what could happen in the United States, presumably in the case of losing the democracy and getting a Trumpocracy? Like essentially Russia represents what the Trump wing of the party would like. Yeah, they want a one party state. That's also emblematic of why the United States, why our nickname became America rather away from the United States, right? We had territory, so we weren't the United States, you know? That's why well, I, we started calling it America. Yeah, so. The United States thinks it thinks it owns America. Well, it does. The Monroe Doctrine. It'll be interesting to see if they exercise it when China tries to get their Atlantic military or Atlantic Navy base. But we'll see. We haven't had a Monroe Doctrine temper tantrum in a while. The last one happened, uh, what, we called the Cuban Missile Crisis and nearly went to nuclear war. I guess a final comment is that we finally seen memetic warfare, meme warfare. Yes. The country of Ukraine has tweeted out memes about this potential invasion, which I think just that sums up the whole thing better than this podcast could. Yeah, honestly, yeah. Is, um, we've gotten to the point where memes are a necessary form of diplomacy. Ukraine tweeted out this image of Google search and they were like, oh, you can't find appeasement in terms of like having it be an effective policy. You can't find appeasement, doesn't work, uh, did not find. Then they also tweeted out the good old headache picture where you know, it's like a uh, pain, deep pain, big pain, and then living next to Russia makes your whole head red. And then Taiwan responded with living next to China. It's funny to go on the Twitter account because like one picture will be, here is beautiful Ukraine, come visit. And then the next picture will be, ah, we're 
thoughts be invaded. Do you think that is a of a coordinated effort to appeal to the American public? Ukraine is giving this effort to try to appeal to the American public to perhaps side on their cause or be familiar with their cause. That's a very interesting question. I think the United States, the only way that sometimes we understand stuff is through memes. And so I think it's actually really powerful to have this short form narrative meme distilling the information down to the people in the US who attention spans are literally two seconds long. So it's like, oh, okay, bad stuff happening. And then they're like, ha, what's going on? And so I think it does help. I really think it helps. I think it's actually an excellent foreign policy tool. Do you think that it's uh, comparable to when Hong Kong protesters in 2019 were flying American flags when it's, China was trying to take control? To, yeah, I, I do. You're spot on about that. I think it's an interesting foreign policy tool. And especially when the United States is rockier than ever, you want uh, the American people backing you. That's for certain. Then... I think we'll leave it at the memes. This has been so helpful in sort of understanding what's going on with Russia and some of the geopolitical tensions abroad. And once again, all of these are pretty blanket statements. This is hopefully objective analysis on the situation. Thanks for analyzing it. Ben. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. You guys can follow me on Twitter at, at D1Wheeler. Be sure to like it. Give it a like. Comment. Subscribe. And then if you're feeling really happy, go follow Kyla on Substack and on Twitter. Instagram, and then go to the TikTok for daily market updates, folks. So thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks so much for listening. Like I said at the beginning, I very much do not want this to be in sort of an inflammatory piece where it's a bunch of speculation around things that literally nobody knows what is going on to a certain extent. So I hope that this really was just a foundational layer based on what we know so far and to looking ahead what we might know in the future. If you have feedback, comments, thoughts, questions, concerns, uh, feel free to leave them in the comments below. And I will be back tomorrow with a more thought a broad thought, a thinky piece just around the markets, around the CPI print, around the movement in crypto regulations, all that good stuff going on. And I will see you all soon. Bye.